On Enmeshed, we discuss crimes and situations that may be disturbing for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Enmeshed, the show that reveals some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Enmeshed family members are fused together by unhealthy emotions instead of the strong bonds that signal a well-functioning family. Boundaries are blurred and unhealthy relationship patterns are formed. Hello and welcome to Enmeshed, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda. And I'm Pam. And today we're here with part two of the Beverly Hills murder of Jose and Kitty Menendez by their sons, Lyle and Eric, on the night of August 20th, 1989. If you haven't yet, please go listen to part one first. Also, there's a thunderstorm going on while we're recording. So if you hear thunder, that may add a little bit of dramatic effect to uh, the story for today. We last left off with 21-year-old Lyle and 18-year-old Eric supposedly discovering the bodies of their parents in their Beverly Hills mansion after a night at the movies. Lyle called the police, theatrically telling the operator that someone killed his parents. Just a side note here, Lyle was labeled narcissistic, which is something you are born with, so he most likely was more confident at lying than Eric. Initially, police suspected a mob hit on Jose and Kitty, But as time went on, they began focusing their attention on the brothers and how they benefited from the deaths of their parents. So after police failed to swab either man's hands for gunshot residue at the scene, the days that followed were fairly normal, for lack of a better word, for the surviving family members of a violent crime. The brothers planned an elaborate memorial service at the Directors Guild of America in L.A. on August 25th. A few days later, on the 28th, the brothers organized a traditional church service at Princeton. Lyle eulogized his parents for 30 minutes while Eric was too distraught to speak. In the days that followed, the brothers, but Lyle in particular, went on a spending spree. Jose's personal life insurance policy of $650,000 had been paid out, and with it, They bought $15,000 Rolex watches, new cars, and designer label clothes. Jose and Kitty had given Lyle a red Alfa Romeo as a graduation present that he never liked. Evidently, he wanted a Porsche. So with the life insurance payout and the inheritance money, he bought himself the gunmetal gray Porsche that he always wanted. Eric traded in his Ford Escort for a Jeep Wrangler. What? How does Eric even start with a Ford Escort? And a Jeep is a big step up? I know, right? Whatever. So there are two things we brought up that I'd like to touch on further. First, we'll get to the inheritance in a moment, but let's focus on Eric's behavior versus Lyle's in the days following the murders. So Lyle, the oldest, was the one to call the police while Eric was too hysterical to talk to the police at all. Eric couldn't speak at the funerals either. Lyle was racking up some serious bills like the car, the watch, a $24,000 stereo system, a $3,000 office in Princeton, the frequent travel from California to New Jersey, 
and even bought a restaurant in Princeton, paying $550,000 for it when the previous owner said it was only worth $200,000. Obviously, it failed. Eric is the frugal one in this family. In an A&E special called The Menendez Murders, Eric tells all, Lyle's miscellaneous expenses totaled $314,384.53, while Eric's came to a measly $9,392.71. Both figures are a lot of money to the average person, but the disparity there is surprising. According to Eric, he mostly spent discretionary money on a full-time tennis coach, throwing himself at the sport to stay busy. Lyle, he said, coped with his depression by spending money. The police took notice of the vast amount of money the brothers were burning through. They also noticed the money that had not been turned over to the brothers. Between a couple of houses that Kitty and Jose owned, the cars, and other assets, including 330,000 shares in live entertainment, where Jose had been an executive. Eric and Lyle expected to inherit upwards of $90 million, according to a friend of Eric's. After all loans and taxes were subtracted from the estate, however, it looked as though each of them would inherit only $2 million. Wow. Yeah, that's still not a small amount for most, and family members would later testify that Eric and Lyle's spending wasn't terrifically different from before the murders, but the difference between $90 million and $4 million was too large for police to ignore. By March of 1990, so nearly seven months after the murders, the police had enough evidence to arrest Lyle for the murder of their parents. Eric was in Israel at a tennis tournament with his coach. On the A&E special, Eric says that he was able to freely fly from Tel Aviv to Miami of his own accord once he learned of Lyle's arrest, and he was then allowed to fly from Miami to Los Angeles without a police escort either to turn himself into the L.A. police. Let's take a quick break, and we'll return to the arrests of Eric and Lyle Menendez, as well as the viper's nest of lawyers and expert witnesses. Are you planning an event with audio and visual needs but are not sure where to start? Waves Entertainment can help. Waves Entertainment is your premier full-service management company with high-quality custom solutions for any size event. Whether you are planning a large festival or concert, a corporate meeting or wedding, Waves Entertainment will power your event to excellence. Our team of industry professionals work closely with your vision to ensure your audience hears every word, sees every detail, and remembers the experience. Our goal is to ensure your event is customized to fit your needs and provide professional-grade equipment to amplify your message. From live stage production and talent booking to vendor coordination, event staffing, and more, Waves Entertainment is your one-stop shop for the perfect event. Visit our website, wavesentertainment.com, or give us a call at 704-662-2435. That's 704-662-2435. Waves Entertainment, powering your event to excellence.
On March 8, 1990, Lyle Menendez is arrested for the murder of Jose and Kitty Menendez, his parents. Three days later, on March 11th, Eric Menendez turns himself in to the Los Angeles police after flying back from a tennis tournament in Israel. So how did their freedom come to an end? Jose had made plenty of enemies through his ruthless, scorched-earth approach to his career, not to mention the mob angle we discussed in the first episode. But the police had begun to suspect the brothers because of the money, as we said earlier. They convinced a high school friend of Eric's to wear a wire during a meetup with Eric and try to get him to confess, but the friend was unable to do so. The damning evidence the police were seeking would come eventually from an unlikely place, a one Judalon Smith. Judalon Smith was a woman who was seeing the same psychologist as Eric, a Dr. Leon Jerome Ozeal. This man is a real piece of work. Following an October 1989 interview with the police, Eric was very, very upset. While he had remained calm during the interview, he was evidently falling apart after it. He tried to call Lyle in Princeton, and when Lyle didn't pick up, Eric turned to Dr. Ozeal for comfort. On October 31st, the two went on a walk around Beverly Hills. As they were returning to Dr. Ozeal's office, Eric finally confessed that they had done it, that he and Lyle were the ones that killed Jose and Kitty. Now, here's where the stories diverge. According to Dr. Ozeal, Eric confessed to everything and said that he and Lyle were concerned their father would disinherit them. They decided the only way to make sure they got their money was to kill Jose. They couldn't think of how to kill Jose without killing Kitty, so they decided she had to die too. Ozeal would later testify in court that during a session with him, the brothers, quote, looked at each other and said, we're sociopaths, unquote. He would also say that Lyle had threatened to kill him on two different occasions. Now, in most cases, what is said in therapy is supposed to be kept entirely confidential. However, there's a stipulation in the law that says, as a provider, if you are reasonably concerned for your health or safety, then you are allowed to break the confidentiality of your patient. And that's where Judalon Smith comes in. Judalon was not only a patient of Dr. Ozeal's, but also his mistress. According to her, Dr. Ozeal had been taping Eric in Lyle's sessions without their knowledge and also had her standing at the door, eavesdropping, while they talked. So there's two thoughts here right off the bat before even hearing what's on those tapes. Either Dr. Ozeal began secretly taping Eric and Lyle and posting Judalon at the door out of a concern for his safety, or he started taping for other reasons entirely, recognized his risk of disbarment, and made up the threats in order to justify Judalon's presence and the tapes in one fell swoop. Exactly. According to Judalon, Dr. Ozeal admitted to her on the phone that he was using the brothers and recording the sessions in order to extort them for their money. She also claimed he told her explicitly that he was not afraid of them, making fun of them and even asking her to pretend to be Eric on a recording. 
While we're in a he said, she said situation here, there are two reasons this is so important to the case. First, Dr. Ozeal spent six days on the stand in that first trial. Yes, the first trial of Eric and Lyle, and their otherwise confidential tapes were admitted into evidence under the word of Ozeal that he'd been threatened and feared for his life. This forced the brothers to admit in court that they had indeed killed their parents. Pleading innocent was completely off the table. Secondly, without Judalon Smith, it likely would have taken even longer for the brothers to be prosecuted. You see, she'd become angry with Dr. Ozeal and broke up with him, immediately going to the police with what she knew about Eric, Lyle, and Dr. Ozeal. As a side note, I'd like to mention that he had been illegally prescribing medications to her during the course of their relationship, so maybe not the most scrupulous doctor. Back to the first trial. In the interest of time, Judge Stanley Weisberg ruled that while the two men would be tried separately with their own juries, the cases would be heard together. If there was evidence that only had to do with Lyle's case, then only Lyle's jury would hear it and vice versa. But if the evidence pertained to both of the brothers and everyone, including a television crew, to broadcast the trial nationally would be in court together. This first trial started on July 20th, 1993, three years after Eric and Lyle were arrested. Jail had stressed the brothers, which was expected, and Bulldog lawyer Leslie Abramson knew the power of appearances. She and Lyle's lawyer, Jill Lansing, made sure the now-gaunt and pale men wore colorful, boyish sweaters each day in court. Along with Dr. Ozeal's six days of testimony, family members and Jose's co-workers took the stand one by one to describe Jose's overbearing, at times cruel behavior towards his sons and, frankly, everyone else. The defense painted an effective portrait of a sadistic, abusive, controlling pedophile accented by these testimonies and the graphic testimony of Eric and Lyle each. The men insisted that they murdered their parents because the tension in the house had reached a fever pitch. Eric had finally confided in Lyle that Jose was still abusing him, even as an 18-year-old, and Lyle confronted Jose and Kitty both. The brothers were convinced, they said, that their parents had planned to kill them on that shark fishing expedition the day before the murders. For them, it was just a matter of time before their parents decided to silence them forever. The prosecution had other ideas. They played up the privilege, the wealth, and the spending, and painted the men as spoiled psychopaths whose only goal was their parents' money. The prosecution used part of their closing arguments to speculate that Eric was gay, and that's why he could fabricate such descriptive acts with his father. The state surmised that Jose had never sexually abused Eric, but instead that he was furious with Eric for being gay. The entire trial was a ping-pong table of greedy, murderous brats on one side and traumatized kids who feared for their lives on the other, and the jury agreed. Judge Weisberg gave Lyle and Eric's juries four choices in deciding the brothers' fate. The juries could find the brothers guilty of first-degree murder with special circumstances, 
They could find the brothers guilty of second-degree murder. They could find the brothers guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Or they could find the brothers guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Lyle and Eric each faced sentencing on three counts, the murder of Jose, the murder of Kitty, and the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. It took Eric's jury 16 days of deliberation to reveal that they were deadlocked on January 13, 1994. Lyle's jury took longer, a whopping 24 days, to reach the same conclusion. The entire trial had been too polarizing for either jury to reach a definitive decision. Both cases were declared a mistrial, and the DA at the time, a Gil Garcetti, said immediately that the men would be retried. Over a year passed before the second trial began, this time with the brothers being tried together in the legal sense. Firebrand Leslie Abramson was joined by Charles Gessler, an L.A. County public defender whose specialty was death penalty litigation. The Menendez estate had run out of money by that point. Opening statements under Judge Weisberg again began on October 11, 1995. This time, the trial would not be televised. He also reigned in the number of witnesses and moved proceedings along in less of a spectacular manner. The prosecution had learned from the blunders of the first trial. This time, they simply played the Ozeal tapes without bringing him onto the stand to be eviscerated by Leslie Abramson and cause a distraction. This time, they were able to remove the theory of battered person syndrome from the courtroom entirely. The defense could still argue that the men had been psychologically and sexually tortured by Jose, but this ruling limited the defense in how far they could push the motivations of Eric and Lyle that night. Now, everyone agreed that Eric and Lyle were the ones to pull the triggers that night. However, L.A. County felt that by correcting one high-profile wrong, they could set another high-profile case right. They were mistaken. See, we're in the O.J. County and time period. So the same coroner who handled Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman had also handled Jose and Kitty. Dr. Irwin Golden had testified during the first trial, but because of mistakes he'd made during the Simpson-Goldman autopsies, he was not called to testify at OJ's trial and now would not be used to try to prosecute Eric and Lyle. Instead, the prosecution hired a Dr. Roger McCarthy to reconstruct the shootings of August 20th, 1989. As the prosecution's star witness, Dr. McCarthy testified that Jose and Kitty's murders were premeditated and deliberate. This contradicted the Eric and Lyle's testimony in the first trial that they'd fired on their parents in a blind panic. It seemed like a slam dunk. Until? Until Dr. McCarthy's qualifications were called into question under cross-examination. McCarthy testified that he had never visited a crime scene or witnessed an autopsy and that he had never seen the impact of a gunshot wound on a human body. He also conceded that he did not consult with the coroner before reaching his conclusions about the Menendez murders. 
While the retrial was significantly less of a circus than the original trial, there was plenty of showmanship on display. Eric testified for 15 days, recounting his childhood filled with abuse and fear, while the prosecution was determined to position Eric as a skilled liar. He lied for six months about who killed his parents, they argued. Why would he be telling the truth now? Both sides called psychological experts as well as criminologists competing for the jury's trust. While Lyle's testimony in the first trial had been compelling, the defense opted not to put him on the stand. Between trials, he was recorded telling a friend that he, quote, snowed the jury, unquote, with his recollections of abuse, and the prosecution had also discovered a letter where Lyle had told his girlfriend at the time how to testify at the first trial. With these suspicious pieces of evidence in the prosecution's arsenal, Lyle did not testify. This is a slimmed-down explanation of the second trial, but essentially the judge ruled that while the defense could argue Eric and Lyle had killed Jose in the heat of the moment, that option was off the table in regards to Kitty's death. After vicious closing statements attacking both the methods of the opposing lawyers as well as their personal characters, the jury began deliberations on March 1st. The jury was only presented with two sentencing options for Lyle and Eric, life without the possibility of parole or death by execution. During the penalty phase of the trial, one of the defense witnesses told the court that he had been directed by Leslie Abramson to doctor his notes in the defense's favor. He was the psychiatrist who had treated Eric during his time in jail, and he testified that Abramson encouraged him to omit incriminating statements Eric made from his notes. Abramson pled the fifth regarding her misconduct, and the brothers unsuccessfully filed for a mistrial. On July 2, 1996, just under two months before the seventh anniversary of the murders, Judge Weisberg sentenced the brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole and also sentenced them to consecutive sentences for the murders and the charges of conspiracy to commit murder. All in all, there were three lengthy trials and 101 witnesses. For 22 years, the brothers were housed in different prisons. In February of 2018, Lyle was moved to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, where Eric was imprisoned. In April of the same year, the brothers were reunited when Lyle was moved to Eric's housing unit. During their incarceration, each had gotten married with Lyle first marrying former model Anna Erickson before they divorced in 2001. He married his current wife, Rebecca Sneed, in 2003. Eric's wife, Tammy Sackerman, wrote a self-published book called They Said We'd Never Make It, My Life with Eric Menendez. Multiple films, documentaries, podcasts, and TV series have discussed the Menendez brothers at length. We know we left out a lot of information, but frankly, the murders and trials can be their own multi-episode podcast. And still to this day, we watch, read, listen, and continue to be so intrigued by the ever-enmeshed Menendez brothers, who will never see the free world again. Lyle and his brother are helping others in prison who were experiencing abuse and trauma as children. 
Lyle works as an activist for prison reform and is also working on a project to have a small outdoor recreation area in the jail in California. Nowadays, Lyle does not wear his toupee, but he has an upbeat attitude. He and his brother also repeatedly express their remorse in media interviews and have accepted the fact that they will spend the rest of their lives in prison. And that's a wrap on season one. We will see you all in the fall for season two of Enmeshed. Have a great summer. Thank you for listening. All of our sources are in today's show notes, as well as those important resources. You can find us at enmeshed underscore true crime podcast on Instagram or enmeshed true crime podcast on Facebook and let us know what you think. You can also get a behind the scenes look at the show and chat with us about any of the cases you've heard here or share case suggestions. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to keep up with Enmeshed, and join us every Monday for fresh takes on stale relationships. Enmeshed is an Oh No production.